Thank you for listening in to this week's sermon from Restoration Church Bryan. To learn more about Restoration, you can find us online at restorationbryan.com. We are so grateful for all those who are able to listen online, and we pray the message encourages you and challenges you as you draw closer to Jesus. If you are not already connected to a local church, we would love to invite you to join us for worship. If you are listening from another city, we pray that this message is a great supplement to your walk with Christ, and our hope is that you would have a gospel-centered local church that you call home. Thanks again for listening. Well, I remember entering freshman year at A&M. Uh, I'm a first-generation Aggie, uh, and my mom and dad, not knowing much about the campus culture uh, at A&M, were, were asking me if I had already considered joining any clubs, any organizations, or, or fraternity on campus. Uh, we didn't have any idea of what the, the culture was, but we had knew, known through experience that this is what people did. You, you join something. Uh, but during those conversations, I remember telling them over and over again, swearing up and down, that I would never join anything that even remotely resembled a fraternity. Just didn't want to do that, didn't want to belong to it, uh, and I certainly did not want to go through the process it took to join one. But as things happen, I remember, or as things happen, I got roped into going to some events and then was told to come to the Rudder Auditorium, did did an interview, and then ultimately got into an organization, the very thing I was not looking to do. But then I thought, you know, might as well. And I remember uh, the first night of, of, of this, this men's organization, sitting there on the steps of the academic building about 1 a.m. As the, as the guy who was in charge of, of, this, of this new member process was explaining the things that we, all 25 of my new closest friends, were going to have to go through. There was a, and as he was saying, as he was talking, he, he began to talk about the, this was going to be a real cost. He was explaining the events uh, the, the people we had to meet, the things that we had to do. And while there were uh, financial fees and small dues, the, the real costs were, were these other things we had to do. And it didn't seem like that big of a deal. Oh, do this, do that. At the end of the day, we'll be okay. Well, fast forward a, a, a month and a half, and I... My 25 new closest friends were being carted off and then dropped off in a pasture and only God knows where in Texas to walk and find our way back to where we were staying. There were many costs that semester. Uh, good, good stuff, loved it, uh, but, but ultimately, why, why, why do I bring it up? What does this have to do with, with our passage, and why am I talking about this? This is not just counseling, not just talking through things. Maybe I need to talk through things. Uh, but the reality is, when you join a group, uh, when, you, when you go to join or become a member or to belong to a group, there are very real costs associated with becoming a part of it. For me and my men's organization in college that I was a part of, we had to go through ridiculous challenges every new member had to face. Uh, but for the military, for example, the initial cost of joining is going through basic training. Or, or even for belonging to A&M, the, the cost 
is ha- is you have to have nothing to do with burnt orange. And from every, every fall moving on, the cost is that your heart is going to break every single football season. However, no one decides to join a group just for the cost. That would be crazy. People, people join because what that group is going to mean to them. For the organization I was a part of, it meant that I was going to have a group of brothers to walk through college together. For those in the military, it, it could mean a variety of things, but things I've heard is it could mean independence. It could mean a sense of fighting for freedom, fighting for our country, and even a place to gain honor and respect. And for Aggies, it means the Aggie Network, the Aggie Ring, and a lifetime of waiting for the infamous next season championship run. Whoop. But for the early church, this, this was a reality for them as well. They had costs and, 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 and really benefits associated with belonging to first Christ and then belonging to his church. The, the price or the cost of belonging came in the form of persecution and opposition. But they gained, in the words of Paul, surpassing worth in knowing Christ Jesus. And so they got to lock arms together with brothers and sisters committed to knowing, loving, and living more on mission for Jesus. And and this is the concept that I want to have in our heads this morning as we walk through our passage and then seek to, to apply it, that the members of the early church understood what it would mean for them, the cost and the benefits, if they chose to belong to Christ and to his church. So our passage today, Acts 12, 1 through 5, highlights the realities of belonging to the church. So let's dig in and see what these realities are and how they are applied to our life today. So uh, verse 1, the, the, the first three words, about that time, about that time, what, what time are we talking about? Well, if you were here last week or you read the passage before this, uh, Jonathan preached last week on that passage that there was a famine coming. In fact, in the church of, of Antioch, a prophet named Agabus stood up and said, hey, listen, there is a famine coming. It's going to affect the whole Roman world. And the leaders of the church decided that they were going to gather together funds to send to Jerusalem in order to offset the trial of this famine that was coming. They saw hardship in the future, and they gathered funds to sin, to send, send them. And about that time, this, this was going on. A passage was happening. As they were gathering in these funds and, and sending the funds to Jerusalem for the, for the trial of the famine that was about to occur, a more imminent trial was just getting started. It says that, that Herod laid violent hands on some who belonged to the church. He killed James, the brother of John, with the sword. Persecution broke out. Led by, by King Herod, uh, and, he, and the, the passage says that he laid violent hands. That, that's not like a, like a soft laying of a hand. Like Violent hand is persecution, like looking to, to kill someone. He, he, he took a sword and beheaded James, or some people think that James was run through with a sword. This wasn't a sword fight, but an on-your-knees execution. Last time we, we see this execution in an axe, it was, it was Saul, the persecutor, 
But the difference between Saul and, and Herod is that Saul went house to house. He was looking to do his duty to what he thought he was doing well in snuffing out and killing, dragging off every believer he could find. Herod did it differently. He went straight to the top of the leadership structure at the church, took out James, then ultimately proceeded to arrest Peter. But if you key on this, he killed James. Why is this important? Why, why James out of the, the other, anyone else in, in the church? Well, James was, as the passage says, the brother of John. And James, John, and Peter were part of Jesus' inner circle. Now, there was 12, and there was three within that 12 that Jesus spent the most time with. In fact, it was these three that got to go up the Mount of Transfiguration and see Jesus before their very eyes transformed into glory for a moment. See, James knew Jesus intimately. He was an early church leader, and he was the first apostle to be martyred. While Stephen in Acts chapter 7 was the first martyr, James was the first big leader of the church to be killed. Even more so, there's no spiritual reason given in this passage by Luke, the writer of Acts, for his death. Unlike Stephen in, in Acts chapter 7, where Stephen gets to stand up and, and, and Luke records his defense and, and how he preached the gospel and ultimately at his death prayed that the Lord would not hold these things against the people that were stoning him, all we have here is that he killed James, the brother of John, with the sword. James was dead, killed unceremoniously, seemingly off scene. And the church was left with one less leader. The leader was dead. And the passage says, When he, Herod, saw that it pleased the Jews, and people were pleased by this, People were, were pleased that, that, a, that a member, a leader of the church, was killed. The, the enemies of the church was, were rejoicing. And I think for, for some of us that haven't seen or really understood persecution well, this, this concept might not, might not land well for you. And so let me give you a more vivid picture of this. In the beginning of 2015, somewhere between January and February, ISIS released a video. It was a, a squad of ISIS men walking 21 Christian men dressed in orange onto the seashore of northern Libya. They placed them on their knees and then proceeded to execute every single one of them. And in the video, and the video is haunting, but in the video you can hear the leader talk about what he is about to do, why he's going to do it, and you can see and hear from the tone of his voice that it pleased him to do so. The Jews were pleased. The enemies of the church were rejoicing that a leader was martyred. And Herod, the one leading this persecution, was looking to endear himself closer with the Jews. And so if killing James 
meant they liked him, how much more would, would killing Peter do for him? So his lust for popularity grew, and he went and found Peter. The text says he proceeded to arrest Peter, put him in prison, and delivered him over to four squads of soldiers to guard him. You see, Peter's now in prison, and, and for Peter, prison, prison's getting familiar by this point. You see, in Acts chapter 4, he is put into prison and then let go. In Acts chapter 5, he is then again put into prison and then an angel, led by an angel to, to escape. And so, how, however, this time, this time, this, it was a little different. Well, the first two times were, were religious reasons why they were put in the prison. The, the Pharisees were, were put them in prison then. This time, it's the government. Herod, King Herod, steps in, puts him into prison, and even more so, puts soldiers around him. Four squads of soldiers, 16 men to guard one single man. I'm sure the thought of escape this time for Peter probably felt a little more improbable, if not impossible. To, to paint the picture of, of, of what this really might have felt for, for Peter and for the church, I think we need to key in on the words uh, in, in, in verse 3 where it says, this was during the days of unleavened bread. And then at the end of verse 4 where it says, intending to bring him out after the Passover. Days of unleavened bread after the Passover. Why are these words so important? Well, it was, it was during this time, some 13 years earlier, that Jesus was arrested, tried, sentenced, and then crucified. So imagine if you're Peter, knowing that this 13 years earlier was the same exact time frame where Jesus was killed. You can imagine that, that him in the church felt this ominous cloud setting in on them. There was a strange familiar about this. The passage goes on and says, but, so, so Peter was kept in prison, but earnest prayer for him was made to God by the church. Like I said, this, this must have felt like the eye of the storm for the church. It's quiet. Peter's just in prison. You know, the first round hit hard. James, their, their, their leader, their, their elder, their pastor, the apostle, was beheaded. And the second round is coming. Seemingly, Peter's ex ex execution is on the horizon. And they can see the storm moving in on them. And I'm sure that the temptation for them at that moment, and, the, and the, really the temptation for us as we read this passage, is to imagine that they were in despair. That they felt the hopelessness of what was going on around them. How could they stand up to the religious pressure? How could they stand up to the government pressure? And I'm, I'm sure we can, the temptation is here to try to feel the high anxiety and fear that they must have surely had. But the text says, but earnest prayer was made by the church. You see, but is a contrast word. There's a contrast going on here. Peter was in, in prison, but the church was not. Church family, don't be mistaken. The church was not in the prison of despair. 
Yes, the clouds of persecution loomed large, but the church gathered together to seek the Lord. Was there pain? Yes. Was there suffering? Yes. Was there hurt? Yes. Was there despair and hopelessness? Absolutely not. So why? Why were those who belonged to the church not driven to despair? You see, no one there at the early church subscribed to the prosperity gospel. The, the notion of health and wealth was absolutely absurd to them. Instead of health and wealth, it was poverty and, and death. And yet people were signing on. You, you take the prosperity gospel another step further, it, it teaches that if bad things happen, if, if a lot of trials and persecutions are happening in your life, most likely it's because of your lack of faith. But if you look at, at this passage in the New Testament as a whole, I don't think you can say anything of that their persecution was in regards to their lack of faith. Yet this was their reality. This was the reality of belonging to the church. And Restoration Family, this is the first point I want to say this morning. These brothers and sisters in Christ were not driven to despair despite what they were facing because they had counted the cost. The reality of belonging to the church was each member had to count the cost. So that's point one, count the cost. But belonging to the church and counting the cost was not simply applying and paying for a membership at a country club. There, the a, a cost of an annual, annual membership could range somewhere between $400 to $50,000. The annual cost of of a first century for the first century Jerusalem church was ostracization from friends and family, inability to buy and sell goods in or near Jewish markets, not to mention that your life would be continually on the line. But this was not a shocker for these early church believers. See, they, they had counted the cost. And I'm sure they, they remember Jesus' words that, that Luke records in Luke chapter 9 where Jesus says, you need, you, if you want to come and follow me, you must pick up your cross. Jesus says that if, if you seek to keep your life, you will surely use, lose it. But if you lose your life for my name, you will surely gain it. You see, brothers and sisters throughout all church history have taken these words serious. Jim Elliott, a, a martyr in Ecuador, once, once wrote, He is no fool who gives up what he cannot lose in order to gain, or sorry, he is no fool who gives up what he cannot keep in order to gain what he cannot lose. And the Dietrich Bonhoeffer, a German theologian fighting against the Nazi rule in Germany, wrote, When Christ calls a man, he bids him come and die. See, the, the, the cost was worth what was offered to them. Paul in Romans 8 writes, For I consider the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is going to be revealed to us. Church family, counting the cost is, is not just a past thing. Uh, 
It wasn't just for the Jerusalem church. It wasn't just for Dietrich Bonhoeffer. It wasn't just for Jim Elliott. Counting the cost is happening every single day. It's happening now. I've already mentioned the persecution and the execution of the 21 Christians in Libya in 2015. Persecution is still alive and going today. You can read stories from Voice of the Martyrs, from brothers and sisters in the Middle East and East Asia and all over the world facing intense persecution. This past week, I started a documentary talking about persecution to Christians and missionaries in Muslim context. The documentary is called Sheep Among Wolves. It's a powerful documentary, but in the first few minutes of the film, a voice comes on. It's the first thing you hear. And the voice has been changed and the appearance has been blurred to protect the identity of the man, but the words are clear. The man said, persecution is an honor for me. Serving is a grace for me. It is worth it first for God and second for people who are going to hell. This man had counted the cost and found it worth proclaiming and following the name of Jesus. So church family, have you counted the cost? I know some here in our church have counted and have experienced a cost associated with following Jesus. I remember when we were going through our Hard Words of Christ series in Luke 12, uh, going, walking through Luke 12, where Jesus said that there would be division for those that followed him. And there are people in our church that have experienced stark division within their families because they have decided to follow and trust Jesus. But maybe for a large number of us in this room, we have said, yes, I've, I've counted the cost. But we know Maybe in the back of our head, subconsciously, we, we know that we live in a country with freedom of religion, and subconsciously we think, what's the worst that could happen to us? So maybe a better question to ask here is, what's your break point? What's your break point? Have you considered what this is? Have you, can, have you counted what it would be? What would have to happen for you to throw your hands up in defeat and curse God? Would it be losing your spouse? Losing a brother? Sister? Friend? Child? Would it be losing your health, your house, your wealth, your your job? What would it be? If any of that or all of that was taken away, would you be able to say, the Lord gives and the Lord takes away, but blessed be the name of the Lord? Church family, you need to count the cost. Praise God. Praise God. Intense persecution is not rampant here in the United States. And this is a blessing. But but this blessing has not been promised to us, nor is it confirmed for tomorrow. So you must decide now what the worth of Christ is for you. Count the cost. 
The Jerusalem church had counted the cost and weren't surprised when it was time for the cost to take their toll. Tony Marita writes, We shouldn't be surprised when we face opposition while we are living on mission. Rather, we should be surprised when we don't. See, this, the, the, the church was not surprised for the opposition that was occurring in Jerusalem. Rather, they were prepared for it. The cost had been counted, and I'm sure the memory, the memory of Stephen being stoned to death and Saul, the once persecutor of the church, going house to house, still lingered in their minds. They were prepared for opposition. If you're following along in the bulletin, this is the second point for this morning. Prepare for opposition. But what does it mean to prepare? And and as I think about preparation or preparing, I think there's a level of commitment that goes along with it. And I think of athletes here. I love Aggie football. Like I said, it's heartbreaking, but I love Aggie football, and I, I follow it pretty closely. And so I get on Texags, admittedly maybe a little too much every once in a while, but I get on Texags, and it's, and it's cool to watch football recruits uh, and how they progress and ultimately when they commit to become an Aggie. And when a recruit gets ready to commit to a college program of their choice, they re- re- release a video, a commitment video. And in the video, it's going to show all that they've done in high school. It'll show them doing drills or or doing a workout or or highlighting some of their their biggest plays or biggest hits on the football field. And it'll show four-plus years of their commitment to preparing for the college level. In fact, one college, a a new A&M recruit that just released a a video uh, about a month or two ago, uh, Jordan Moko is a 6'5", 335-pound man, and he is, I'm I'm sure, he is more agile than me. (laughs) Not just because I'm out of shape, but because he has been committed, committed to preparing for college football for years, and so when he shows up on campus, there's a good chance he starts. Church family, preparation comes through commitment. The church's preparation for opposition came from, from a variety of things, from them being committed to a variety of things. First, to Scripture. You can read in Acts chapter 2 that they were devoted to the apostles' teachings and the apostles were devoted to the Scriptures. Look at, look at sermons and prayers and, and, and messages. Peter is in Acts 2 and Acts 4. The church's prayer for boldness, again in Acts 4. Stephen, Stephen's sermon defense in Acts 7. Philip the evangelist's message in Acts 8 to the Ethiopian eunuch. These messages, these sermons, these prayers, they are, they are filtered. They have a lot of Old Testament scripture in there. And this was no accident. They didn't show up and it's like, ah, I never heard that before, but this is Scripture. No, they were devoted to Scripture. They were committed to Scripture. And they knew the power of Scripture to change the hearts of those who were listening. The church was also prepared for opposition as they were committed to communal living and giving. Look at Acts chapter 2 again. They were committed to evangelism. Peter, John, Stephen, Philip, Barnabas, Paul. They had a track record of evangelism. 
They were committed to prayer, and we'll talk about this in a second, but here is my point. The early church's commitment to scripture evangelism, communal living, giving, and prayer helped prepare them to face the inevitable opposition they knew was coming when they counted the cost to become a follower of Jesus. They took serious the words of Jesus when he spoke to the disciples the night he was betrayed in the upper room, when he told them that they would have suffering in this life. Suffering was inevitable for them. But in the same breath, Jesus reminded them to be courageous and to remember that he had conquered the world. They were prepared for whatever the enemy would throw at them. What about you, Christ follower? Are you prepared to face opposition? The early church was. But here, here's the warning for us. Just because you prepare for opposition does not make the attacks the inevitable attacks, any less painful. The church knew this. They were prepared, but when James was beheaded, Peter and Peter arrested, it still hurt. What were they to do about it? The attacks still took their toll. In the church, it was time for the church to counter to counter to counter the attack they would need to retaliate but how they would use the greatest weapon the church has verse 5 says so peter was kept in prison but earnest prayer for him was made to god by the church the church retaliated by devoting themselves to prayer this was reality of belonging to the church. When the opposition takes aim to attack, the church devotes themselves in prayer, both individually and personally, but also corporately, together as family. And this has not changed for us today. Church family, we must be devoted to prayer. This is my third point this morning. Be devoted to prayer. Prayer must be an important aspect of our lives. It, it, it has to be. One, one commentator wrote, the, the corporate prayer meeting is the powerhouse of the church. John Piper, in his book, Let the Nations Be Glad, refers to prayer as the church's wartime walkie-talkie. Prayer is immensely important for the community of believers. And the Jerusalem church, they, they understood this. With James dead and Peter seemingly awaiting certain execution, they gathered together in prayer. And we can only imagine, gathered together in that house that night, what kind of prayers were offered. I'm certain many at least some of those that were gathered together to pray for, for Peter 
have gathered, gathered together earlier days before to pray for James. Yet James didn't walk free. So what would happen with Peter? And I want us to sit here for a minute. With the church assuredly praying for, for James who died and now praying for, for, for Peter, I think a lot of us in this room have been in this situation before. Maybe not in regards to death by persecution, but many have gathered in hospital rooms, in churches, in, in houses, to plead with the Lord in regards to cancer, to disease, to sickness, to abuse, and to a variety of other tragic events. In a response to, to those prayers, some, some have seen them answered, and they, they've heard the answer, sickness healed, disease gone, surgery successful, cancer in remission, custody battle won. But for others, the answer to those prayers was silence. And followed by silence was death, was pain, hurt, and loss. Christ follower, here is the hard truth. We are not promised answered or prayers being answered the way we desire. We're not. Rather, we are promised and have been adopted by an attentive Father who is working all things out to his utmost glory. Our Father listens, and our Father is sovereign. And we can go to his feet in prayer and plead with him. We can plead with him. Charles Spurgeon writes, there, there are blessings like ripe grapes that, that drop into your hand the moment you touch the vine. But then there are others which requ require you to grab hold of the tree and shake it again and again until you make it rock with all the vehemence of your exercise, for only then will the fruit fall down. As we stand together and we shake the tree in prayer, sometimes the fruit that falls is a rescued or healed saint. But other times, what comes from the hand of the Father is a no. But regardless of the answer, we must know and trust that our Father is good. He is not ignorant to your pain. He is not ignorant to what you are experiencing. Rather, he is constantly working all things out for his glory and our good. But church family, let's be honest here. The attacks from the enemy, the attacks from this world, they hurt. Jonathan preached this during his Forge to Follow Christ series in, in February when he was going through 1 Peter that, that our enemy, the devil, walks around like a roaring lion. 
And there is nothing that he would like more than to hunt down every single one of believers to inflict wounds, pain, harm, and hurt, and to maybe witness them fall. But here's the thing. Church family, Jesus promises the gates of hell cannot and will not overcome the church. Paul in 2 Corinthians writes, We are afflicted in every way, but not crushed. Perplexed, but not driven to despair. Persecuted, but not forsaken. Struck down, but not destroyed. Church family, the attacks of the enemy, his arrows, the wounds and the scars afflicted upon us and our family, they hurt, but the wounds are not final. In 1 Corinthians, Paul writes, death has swallowed up, death has been swallowed up in victory. So, so death, where is your victory? Death, where is your sting? Thanks be to God who gives us victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. The wounds we experience are not final. While they hurt and they sting and death appears to be final, we must trust and remember that they are not I'll close by highlighting this one step further by an analogy I heard from Jonathan back when restoration first began. It's a good one. Dodgeball. Most of us, or at least I would hope, most of us grew up or at some time have an experience of playing dodgeball. I played it all the time in elementary school. And being the dodgeball champion was like the pinnacle of early education. Sorry, teachers. That's what I thought. But I remember one Friday in elementary school, at AP Boydell Elementary, our PE teacher, it was a Friday we always played dodgeball, our, our PE teacher couldn't find the soft and squishy dodgeballs we, we normally played with. Instead, she found, we decided to use like rubber hard kickballs. Y'all, those hurt. They just make me cry today. And we, when we saw those balls bringing out to play dodgeball, we realized dodgeball was no longer a game. This was going to be life or death because getting hit by one was going to hurt. Let me see how, how, how familiar you are with the rules of dodgeball. When someone gets pegged by the ball, are they out? Yeah, they're out. Now what happens... If in anger, after someone gets pegged by the ball and it hits the floor, in, in anger, they pick up that ball and chunk it right back at you and it hits you square in the face. Are you out? No. It may hurt, it may sting, but the result of the game has not changed. You're in and he's out. And as silly as this may sound, this is the picture we must have of Satan. The balls have been thrown. And through de Christ's death and resurrection, his sentence has been cast. He's out. He has been defeated. And, all, and he is on the way out. And as he's walking to the sideline, he is picking up every dodgeball he can find and chunking at us. It'll hit our face, it'll hit our arm, it'll hit our leg, and it stings, and it hurts. But the result of the game has not changed. 
So when we, when we get hit in the face by one of his attacks, we must remember not to respond as if we are victims, but rather to remember that we in Christ are victors. Even in the hardest of attacks and the darkest of night, where victory seems nearly impossible, remember the score. Christ has risen victoriously over sin, death, and Satan, and church family. He has shared this victory with all who trust and believe in him. This, this is the reality of belonging first to Christ and to his church. We are not victims, but through Christ, we are victors. Y'all pray with me.